Hi everyone, welcome to the San Diego News Fix. I'm Christy Totten. The India variant of the coronavirus has been detected in San Diego County. Reporter Paul Sisson has the details, plus he has an update on the ransomware attack that shut down the computer systems at Scripps Health. Then Pulitzer Prize winning photojournalist Don Bartletti shares what he's learned in 40 years of covering immigration. First, the news. San Diego leaders adopted a temporary rent cap Tuesday and new rules that make it harder for landlords to evict tenants during the pandemic. The new ordinance takes effect early in June and will last some time until August. Under the new law, landlords can no longer evict tenants for just cause reasons, such as lease violations. They can only evict tenants if they are an imminent threat to health or safety. San Diego rent will be capped at roughly 4%. San Diego County supervisors voted 3-2 to approve the ordinance. A man accused of piloting the boat that crashed near Point Loma on Sunday has been charged in San Diego federal court, according to a complaint filed Wednesday. Antonio Hurtado faces charges of attempting to bring in undocumented migrants at a place other than a port of entry and assault on a federal officer. Both charges are felonies. According to the complaint, many of the 29 survivors identified Hurtado in a photo lineup as the captain of the 40-foot boat that crashed on Sunday. The passengers were mostly from Mexico and one is from Guatemala. Three drowned, two passengers remain hospitalized, and the others are now in federal custody as material witnesses in the case. Coronavirus vaccines are now available at CVS pharmacies in San Diego and throughout the U.S. without making an appointment. CVS made the announcement Wednesday. That includes 1,115 locations in California, with dozens of pharmacies in San Diego County. Locations are listed at CVS.com. About 70% of Americans live within three miles of a CVS, according to the company. The India variant of the coronavirus has been detected in San Diego County. Paul Sisson has the story, plus an update on Scripps Health. A ransomware attack targeted patient records, scheduling, and other critical systems on Saturday. As of Wednesday, they were still offline. Okay, so the first case of the India variant has arrived in San Diego. Do we know how it got here? We know that it was a woman in her 20s returning from travel to India and um, that she got back in late March, was hospitalized in early April. Uh, The local public health department didn't find out about it until last Thursday, the 29th. Uh, As you may know, the only way you can tell whether one variant or another is involved is to take a sample and do genetic sequencing on it. And that isn't super fast. So it may take them a couple of weeks to even a month to get that sequencing done and get the report back. So that that appears to be why there was almost a month lag time between when this person was hospitalized and when the county found out that uh, this uh, variant was involved. Does the county think there might be more cases here locally? They haven't really said much about it, but I am positive that they do. Um, What they did say to me today in writing was uh, that they are sequencing about 15% of uh, positive test samples. Um, <clears throat> so we, we know we're, we're, we're not even sequencing a third of the people who are getting sick. So that means that there's a lot of people, 85% of, of tests aren't, aren't even getting sequenced. So um, 
you can think of these genetic reports as kind of a, a sampling of everything that's out there. So, so if we do see uh, one case, then, then we can assume there's probably more just because we know we're not sequencing everything. I think people hear the term new variant and get scared, but I mean, is the India variant more contagious and what should we know about it? Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, you know, it's, it's murky. We know, for example, uh, B117, what was called the UK variant because it was first discovered in, in the United Kingdom, uh, is something like 40% more uh, transmissible from person to person just because of the way that it uh, attaches to the uh, ACE receptors in the body. Um, this, uh, this variant out of India um, carries some similar or, or the same mutations that are found in, in some other variants, not 117, but uh, uh, one that, that's been detected down in South Africa that's pretty worrisome and, and another uh, that's been found in Brazil, P1. Um, and so there's some thought that it may be more transmissible and it may be more resistant to the antibodies that vaccination creates in your body. Um, but they just haven't really studied it enough to know for sure. Uh, some of these variants have initially looked like they might be very problematic. And then when they get to looking a little further and actually doing real world, real world studies, they find that the vaccines are still quite effective. They're less effective than they were against other variants, but still effective enough uh, to you know, significantly um, reduce your chances of severe illness if you do get sick. Uh, let's talk about Scripps. Scripps experienced a cyber attack over the weekend on Saturday. You've been following it. What is the latest? Oh, it really seems like they are very hard hit at, uh, at Scripps, our second largest health system be behind Sharp. Um, you know, they've got four hospitals and a wide ranging network of, of clinics and, and outpatient surgery centers. You know, they're a modern healthcare system. Um, know that employs thousands of people and has thousands of patients. Um, the latest is that they appear to still be locked down. Uh, we were able pretty quickly on Sunday afternoon to establish that this is ransomware that is in, has in some way locked down their uh, critical systems, especially their electronic healthcare record. Um, and, uh, you know, apparently their scheduling system as well. Uh, you know, there, there have been a fair number of patients who have talked over the last few days about trying to reschedule appointments and really struggling to do so. You know, they'll call in and find that, uh, gosh, the people answering the phone don't even have any access to the scheduling system that would allow them to see that you did have an appointment. Um, and not only that, but they, they don't have any access to the electronic medical record to confirm that you were a patient. <laughs> Um, and so, you know, that, that is, as far as we can tell, still ongoing. Um, I, I got a, you know, I've been back and forth with the California Department of Public Health uh, yesterday and today. Uh, you know, it just occurred to me, we, we've been hearing a little bit out of the hospitals about situations where, you know, they don't have a network anymore. So if you need an x-ray, you know, they've got to go to the x-ray machine where it is and read it off the machine. And, um, you know, it creates some definite slowdowns. And then, you know, you move from an electronic charting system to a paper charting system. Now you need to be, you know, taking that chart with a patient as they move through a hospital. Imagine, say you're going into surgery 
you know, and so you're in your room and you, you know, you've written down, you know, what your vital signs are and what, what's to be done. And now that chart needs to travel with you as you move to surgery and then into recovery and then to your room again. So, you know, that's a lot more handling and handoff of paper, uh, you know, than they have been doing recently as, as everything has gone digital. Uh, so, you know, I just wondered, gosh, this sounds like it might not be as safe for patients as it was previously, uh, you know, and so uh, Scripps has said, you know, all of our facilities are still open. Uh, we do know that some things have been diverted, uh, you know, emergency uh, ambulances, uh, you know, certain types of cases, trauma cases, heart attacks, strokes have been diverted away from their hospitals uh, to a large extent. Uh, there hasn't been total transparency on exactly how that's going. It looks like most of that is still going on today. Um, you know, and this is unprecedented. This is, I'm, I'm sure, the longest uh, cyber attack um, that we've seen in San Diego, um, where a, a major organization like this is impacted day after day after day. I mean, I guess this thing started in the second half of Saturday. So, uh, you know, it's been a long time. Uh, you know, and so CDPH, California Department of Public Health, got back to me in an email uh, just this morning and said, uh, yes, indeed, we, we are aware of what's going on there. We are keeping an eye on it. Um, you know, they are operating under emergency protocols right now at Scripps. Uh, and, you know, at this point, we feel like they are doing a good job of it, that they, uh, you know, that they are not putting patient lives at risk by continuing to admit people. Uh, you know, because you could argue, geez, they should just shut down until this thing is dealt with. Uh, but it does not appear that uh, the state regulator is asking them to do that at this time. Uh, they did say that they do have that ability, though, if they if they determine that patient safety is starting to become impacted by some of the inconveniences that this uh, ransomware attack has caused. Uh, they do have the ability to just shut these places down until it's resolved. Yeah, I mean, so how are they going about resolving it? If it is ransomware, is there a ransom or what steps are they taking? Yeah, uh, Scripps has been totally opaque uh, on this entire issue. You know, their their first statement called it a cyber attack. Uh, I, I still haven't seen anywhere where they've uh, even acknowledged uh, that it is ransomware. Uh, we were able to uh, obtain an internal memo that referenced ransomware uh, and then the CDPH uh, use that word as well in their response to us. Uh, so we're confident that it is ransomware, but they, they uh, refuse to acknowledge that. Um, so we have no idea what ransom might be being asked for or uh, you know where they're at in the negotiation process. Uh, the internal memo that we saw on Sunday did indicate that, uh, that this ransomware also affected their backup servers in Arizona. Uh, you know, and one, one way that you deal with a ransomware attack, of course, is to just wipe all your systems and reload from your backups. And uh, so that's very concerning to think that uh, that the backups have been affected. You know, I've, I've got a bit of a computer background. And one thing you always hope is that you have a, you know, a cold copy of your data that's not plugged into anything. It's on a drive somewhere in a vault on tapes or whatever. Uh, you know, sitting there, they have that company, Iron Mountain, that sends the, uh, you know, the the big uh, armored trucks around to pick up people's backups. So you, you hope that they have an offline backup that they could, you know, worst comes to worst, uh, load in and 
and not lose everything. That uh, they haven't really given us any input in terms of whether they do or they don't or, or what they're doing. Uh, you know, some of these ransomware attacks, they don't only lock down data and ask for ransom, but they will also sometimes pull down records and threaten to publish them. Uh, I just spoke to a security expert earlier today who talked about uh, a ransomware attack that's going on uh, in Europe, I think he said, and um, they actually downloaded individual patient records like psychiatric records, and then they're going and blackmailing individual patients, uh, you know, threatening to release their psychiatric notes if, uh, if they don't pay up. There, there are no, and to be very clear, there are no indications that that's what's happening here with Scripps. Uh, we, we don't really know uh, to the extent uh, what has been locked down, what has been lost, what has been retained. Uh, they, they have just uh, been totally radio silent on all of it. And, you know, honestly, I, I feel like I do understand that to some degree. If you are in a situation where somebody's trying to extort you and you're working with the FBI and you're working with, uh, you know, a lot of law enforcement, it makes sense that you would need to be careful about what you said while you're trying to resolve this. Um, you know, on the other hand, uh, they've got thousands of patients who are all worried about their medical records that are in Scripps custody. And um, so I think people expect and demand to know what's going on as much as possible. Uh, so I think we're all hoping, you know, they didn't say anything about the situation yesterday. Um, so I think everybody's hoping that there will be some kind of update today uh, just to provide some reassurances or explanations about what's going on. I guess the question I have is like, how responsible is Scripps for this? It's like, if this happened to them, is it because they had inadequate security? Is it because they've done something wrong necessarily? Or it's just, um, you know, un sort of an, an unfortunate attack that could have been on anyone? Yeah, you and me both were kind of steering into the mail slot on this one. It's like, uh, you know, we can only see kind of edges and bits and pieces that end up leaking out on in online forums or whatever, but it's, uh, uh, it's hard to see the whole shape of this beast. Um, you know, it's hard for me to believe that Scripps was ignoring cyber threats. I mean, this is a major multi-billion dollar healthcare company with multiple hospitals and um, many well-paid professionals working for them. Uh, I can't imagine that they've been ignoring data security. Uh, but, you know, I mean, uh, we just uh, we just saw a big attack on, I think it was called UHS, a big hospital company with over 400 hospitals. And they, uh, they just had a massive uh, similar ransomware attack uh, last year. So, um, you know, it just seems that no matter how much attention you pay, it's it's never quite perfect, uh, you know, and it it often comes down to individual human behavior. You know, if somebody sends you a phishing email and you and it looks convincing and you uh, you click on it, you know that or if you log in where they tell you to log in on a, on a website that looks like it's for your company or it's real and it turns out to be fake and they're just logging your lo login and password into a database. Uh, now they've got. Now they've got to log in into your network. Uh, so it's it's often, from what the experts are telling me, 
that human factor, individual employees uh, who, you know, they're all hurried and, and often this stuff looks very real. Uh, you know, it's, uh, I think the, I think Scripps employs over 20,000 people, so. Now for opinion. Don Bartletti is a Pulitzer Prize-winning photographer who has covered immigration for more than 40 years. He worked at the San Diego Union newspaper before going on to work at the LA Times. Don Bartletti won a Pulitzer for his work on Enrique's journey, documenting a 17-year-old boy's treacherous journey from Honduras to the United States in hopes of finding his mother. This weekend, the UT Opinion section will publish photos and an essay of Bartletti's documenting recent movements at the border and his experience covering it. Don, you've been covering immigration since 1979, uh, as you wrote in your essay that will run this weekend. What initially drew you to the subject? Well, it was ironically, it was an assignment from the San Diego Union with Marjorie Miller to go down to a place in Otay Mesa called the Soccer Field. The Border Patrol was having a lot of trouble controlling um, and it was that day that I saw hundreds of people waiting uh, at the borderline that was essentially a barbed wire, strand of barbed wire pressed into the soil by thousands of people coming north. So um, I decided right then and there, this is historic. This is fantastic. Unbelievable. Uh, and, I, and I kept from 1979 to the current day. Uh, kept my eye and my lens on the causes and consequences of uh, immigration. Yeah, I mean, what are some of the things you've covered over that time and, and how has the story changed since then? Well, the story remains the same, actually, because it, 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 the push out of Latin America is because of, mainly because of poverty. Uh, we get a lot of stories that it's because of uh, violence, random violence, drug violence is on the rise in Mexico and Central America. But I've covered just about every aspect, every inch of the border from uh, Tijuana to Brownsville, all the way from uh, practically from Alaska to Argentina. But it started right here in my own backyard here in North San Diego County with farm worker uh, squatter camps. Hundreds if not thousands of mostly Mexicans um, living in the canyons of North San Diego County, and they were employed by uh, tomato farmers, uh, hospitals, restaurants, car washes, hotels, but they couldn't afford the rent, and they were remitting money back to those left behind in their home villages, home cities. So they established these little um, uh, embryonic barrios, I call them, Sometimes uh, 50 to uh, 1,000 people were living in these. I wouldn't call them homeless camps because they had structure. They didn't have electricity or running water, um, but they, uh, they were thriving. We don't see them now. Uh, they're gone. But So my interest uh, you know, in the border began at the border and up here at our second border in San Diego County. And and went from, from there, it evolved into changing migratory routes because of increased enforcement along the line itself. And I was always interested in what's pushing people out of Latin America. 
Um, I famously followed the most lethal migratory route in North America from Honduras to North Carolina for a story titled Enrique's Journey. That won the Pulitzer Prize in the year 2003. Included a very dangerous route on the Beast, which was a freight trains that run north through Mexico. So I, I, I continue covering the story because it's never ending. It's part of the human race. It's as old as time. So um, it's, it's always worth giving uh, the reading uh, public an update on what's happening. Well, speaking of Enrique's journey, we've seen this influx of unaccompanied minors um, come to the border again recently. Can you talk about what that journey was like and what some of these young people are facing on their way here? Well, based on um, one boy, well, Enrique, of course, the hero, was leaving for to see his mother. His mother had gone before him about 10 or 15 years before, and he wanted to see if he still loved her. But on the trains, I met a boy named Dennis. Dennis was 12 years old, riding the trains alone, trying to find his mother in San Diego. He told me uh, the gangs infesting his neighborhood of San Pedro Sula, Honduras, were lethal. That they wanted him to join the gang. He didn't want to join the gang. Uh, they were bothering his sister, who was a nurse. They were extorting the police. So he decided to leave, and 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 he made it north, not unlike the circumstances of. In uh, 2015, 2014, when 60,000 unaccompanied minors were found at the Texas border. Ostensibly, they left because of the same fears. So I went back for the LA Times in that year, uh, back to Honduras, to find out what was pushing them out. My reporter and I already knew, but I was translating, once again, poverty, random violence uh, into photographs. And it's, it's still that way. And it's pushing millions of Mexicans north as well. How has telling these stories affected your life? You know, you're chronicling other people's lives, but of, of course it's, it has to have shaped yours as well. Well, it has. It's given me um, a great amount of uncertainty. I still can't make up my mind um, about migration for survival. When I'm on the migrant trails in the sending pueblos and cities, I get it. I totally understand why people are leaving. I would have done the same thing. When I'm here north of the border in my own community, um, uh, I understand the, the circum things are changing here. And I think it's human nature to resist change. It's uncomfortable to hear people speaking foreign languages uh, it's uncomfortable to, uh, to to try to assimilate if you're a new immigrant. So I get that. I, I, I you know, I, I don't, uh, I don't reveal how I feel, uh, but I've shed tears on both sides of the border. There was a quote in uh, your piece that's running this Sunday in the opinion pages from a border patrol officer that said something like, "I got into this job for law enforcement, but now I'm a babysitter." How are they looking at this? Well, they, south of Yuma, along the Arizona border there, along the Colorado River, I call it controlled anarchy. The Border Patrolman told me that because, you know, in, in prior years or even months, people were trying to get over the fence and run. Now they're coming to the fence. 
doing their level best to get the attention of the Border Patrol. So they will apply for asylum or, uh, yeah, asylum. So, um, so what's happening now is Border Patrolmen are not chasing anybody. They're, it, it, it's a crisis of housing, of uh, accounting, uh, shelter, uh, food, and the children have to be watched out for. There are no unaccompanied minors that I witnessed south of uh, Yuma. That's not the case here. But his sarcastic uh, comment said that, you know, now, now I'm just an administrator. I'm a clerk. I'm a tally clerk. I'm a, ta a taxi driver because um, it's overwhelming. There aren't enough buses, pickup trucks, or sprinter vans to take everybody uh, to the detention center. And will you explain a little more about the package that's running Sunday? What's in it? Uh, what can readers and listeners expect to see? Well, I appreciated the forum of an op-ed because an op-ed, the op-ed I wrote is, is first person and I demanded it be my observations, not my conclusions. However, I saw the current position of the fence next to the Colorado River on U.S. territory as being a magnet that uh, is being uh, taken advantage of by smugglers and by people who are escaping circumstances in Venezuela, Cuba, Brazil. So I wanted people to know that, you know, this is not only a problem in Texas, where the border fence is on the U.S. side, but it is not necessarily a problem because that's an opinion, but it is reality. And there's an open door now on the Arizona-Mexico border uh, that is a temptation that's too hard to resist for, from what I saw, 300 people. But it's happening every single day now. And finally, um, what are you what are you working on now? Well, that was the latest thing. That was the most important update to my um, um, 40 years of documenting U.S.-Mexico relations, migration for survival, causes and consequences. Well, that is um, well, that that was very very interesting to cover and see and witness, and. Um, but it doesn't preclude my interest in my grandchildren, my garden, my motorcycle, and all the beautiful things that uh, that we enjoy here as free Americans, and all the beautiful things that I think the migrants are looking for as well. You can find Don's work at donbartlettyphotography.com. That's D-O-N-B-A-R-T-L-E-T-T-I, photography.com. And look out for his work in the Union Tribune this Sunday, in the paper, and online at sandiegouniontribune.com. I'm Christy Totten, host of the San Diego News Fix. Thanks for listening.